Amen. Well, the scripture reading this, this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, rather Matthew chapter 10, 1 to 13. We're reading, uh, we're going through a series of sermons on discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Today we're reading Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read the first 13 verses. This is a reading of God's word. And he called to him 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for the journey, only two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is unworthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to it. Amen. That's a reading of God's word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning. We come before you and every, we come to this church and we come, come to places of worship, not because we got it together, but because we're, we're weary and we're broken and we're like sheep who wander away. And so I, I thank you that you give us this word to, to bring us back home to you. So I pray that this word preached would be your words, would it be words of life, of encouragement, of truth, of hope. And I pray that through this entire service, we would meet you in a profound and powerful way. We give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you just joined us, uh, we just have started a series of sermons on discipleship. And we're looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Many people, especially today, think that to be a Christian is essentially just going to church. Christian is essentially someone who believes stuff about God and goes to church. And I want to say that that is not, uh, it's a very incomplete idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Jesus gives us a real picture of what a true disciple is, who they are in this picture of these 12 men. And they model for us what any follower of Jesus should look like. And today we're going to look at this idea that a follower of Jesus is someone who is on mission with him. Follower of Jesus is someone who is on mission with him. Some people ask me uh, personally uh, how I got called into ministry. They say, Dennis, how did you decide you wanted to be a pastor? And essentially, if I was to sum it up real quick, uh, I, I became convinced of my calling to be a minister through a lot of missions, short-term missions trips trips ever since I left high school. Right out of high school, I went on a missions trip to Nepal that changed my life. Uh, in college, I went to places like Czech Republic. I spent time at a Native American reservation in Canada. Right after college, I was, uh, went on a short-term trip to Paraguay. And in all of those places, I saw God just at work 
I saw God changing lives. And I saw God really calling me. And I was like, God, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of how you are moving around the world. And I want my life to be more than about myself and my name. And it was through missions that I really got a glimpse of God's heart. And this morning I want to share to you that any follower of Jesus, uh, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you also are called to mission. Uh, You are also called to be part of what Jesus is doing in this world. And so today as we look at Matthew 10, I want to just look at three things about mission. Number one is our need for it, why there is a need for mission. Uh, Secondly, what does it look like to be on mission with Jesus? And third, what is the power for it? Those three things. Today I want to start with this idea for our need for mission. Uh, We're looking at, throughout this series, Matthew's Gospel. There are four Gospels in the Bible. Matthew is the very first Gospel. And in Matthew, uh, he spent a lot of time in the first nine chapters talking about how Jesus assembles his 12 disciples. Matthew is actually uh, a disciple himself. He's a tax gatherer. We're going to talk about his story in a moment. In chapter 9, Matthew talks about his own calling. He was the final disciple. So as Matthew 10 opens up, finally the 12 disciples are finally gathered together. That number 12 is important in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. The reason why there were 12 disciples was Jesus was saying there is now a new people of God. In the Old Testament, the people of God were 12 uh, tribes. There are 12 disciples because Jesus is saying, I'm calling a new people, a new movement, a new community together. It's going to start with these 12 disciples. So as Matthew 10 opens, the 12 disciples are set. He names every single disciple. And they're ready. And the question is, what are they ready for? And the answer is, they're ready for mission. Now that Jesus assembles his 12 disciples, his purpose in assembling them is to send them out. If you want to be a disciple, Jesus gathers you together and he brings you into his presence so that he can eventually send you out. He's going to eventually, ultimately send them to the nations. And right before that, we... Uh, he prepares his disciples for a mission in Matthew 9 by helping them to see why missions are so important. Matthew 9, we didn't read this verse. It says that Jesus, he gives them a glimpse of everything that is happening, all the crowds that are gathering. In Matthew 9, 35 to 36, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We say earlier when Jesus was trying to find disciples, he was very skeptical about the crowds. As he did miracles, all of these people came to him and Jesus was often very skeptical about the crowds because he knew that Most of them just wanted miracles. They didn't really want him. Uh, He was looking for true disciples who were truly committed to him. But now that Jesus finds his 12 disciples, in many respects his attitude toward the crowd changes. Instead of being critical uh, about them, he has compassion on them. In verse uh, 36 it says that 
He has compassion for them. That Greek word for compassion is loaded with emotions. Uh, One translation is his heart broke for the crowds. He begins to grieve for the crowds. Why is that? It says he sees them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Old Testament, a metaphor for people uh, are that they are like sheep. They are like sheep. Sheep have had a tendency to wander away. Sheep have a poor sense of direction. They have poor eyesight. They're constantly wandering. And that was an apt metaphor for people because we are constantly wandering from God. We are constantly uh, wandering from his presence, from his power. And we, like sheep, need to be drawn back by a shepherd. We need to be drawn back into the presence of God. The second big attribute of sheep is that they were very vulnerable. Sheep are uh, animals that are entirely defenseless against predators. You know, they, they cannot bite anyone. They don't have claws. They don't have any offensive weapons. They can't even run fast. Their sheep, their skin is very sensitive. Uh, they are entirely helpless. And what Jesus is saying that is that no matter how much we pretend uh, to be invulnerable, we are, uh, we are like sheep. We're harassed and we're helpless. We're, we're beat up by disease, by tragedy. Uh, we're, uh, we're beaten up by life and ultimately by death itself. When you look at the world today, it's fair to say that humanity is a mess. You know, there is, as John Gim mentioned, a coronavirus that is spreading, that is causing all kinds of anxiety. I feel it so much. Uh, I felt it so much this week. Uh, some experts say that there is just, it's just a matter of time before a pandemic hits. It could be this one, or it, it will be eventually something else. But that idea of pandemic is going to be for us just a way of life. It's going to happen at some point. Uh, we have to be prepared for it like people in Southern California are preparing for an earthquake. There's a lot of anxiety. We're prone to disease, to cancer. Uh, when you look out politically, things are a mess here and abroad. And because of that, there's all kinds of economic distress. There's all kinds of anxiety. Uh, when you look at our city today, there's all kinds of issues with homelessness, with housing, with mental health. Jesus looks upon us today and he sees that we are harassed and we're helpless. We're needy of a shepherd. The mission of Jesus is to be that good shepherd. He sees, he sees us in all of our helpless estate. And he has come in midst of the chaos to be his peace, to be the peace of God. Uh, He has come to heal us from our greatest anxiety and guilt. He's come to forgive us completely. He's come to defeat our greatest enemies, which are sin and death. And he will take them in our place. One way I love to think about the mission of Jesus is he's come to bring heaven down to earth. He's come to, to bring the peace of heaven down to the chaos here on earth. He's come to be our good shepherd. And here's the thing. When uh, Jesus shows them the crowds and all the anxiety and the chaos, Jesus invites his disciples to be part of that mission of bringing heaven 
down to the chaos. This is what he asked his disciples to do. This is in Matthew 9, verse 37 to 38. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus says, well, the harvest is plentiful. There's all kinds of needs and opportunities, but the workers are few. There are very few people to assist me in this mission. So pray, pray to God. He send out workers. Uh, missions always begins with prayer. It always begins with a desire to ask God to move. They pray. They're to pray for workers. And guess what happens in the next chapter? Jesus sends them out. Jesus essentially says to them, uh, be your own answer to prayers. That you, you want God to be going out and be doing a great work. I'm sending you to be the answer to your own prayers. And evangelism today, uh, to be on missions with Jesus, is one aspect of it is evangelism. Evangelism is very unpopular today, especially in a city like Los Angeles. Evangelism is seen as pushing your religious beliefs on other people. People in L.A. are largely fine with religion. Just don't be pushy with it. Uh, Keep it private. Keep it to yourself and we're good. Just practice it yourself. Don't push it on other people. Um, And what what is wrong with that? What is wrong with that? Imagine if you were part of a community. We're talking about the coronavirus that has a cure for that virus. And just this community has this cure for that virus. And imagine you had a friend later on, who had, that, who had that virus and it's spreading everywhere. Some people are dying from it. Imagine he came up to you after everything is over and he realized that you had the cure, but you did not tell him about it. And imagine he confronts you and says, you know, why didn't you tell me you had the cure for that? And imagine if you said to him, well, you know, I just felt like it might be, it might be a little uncomfortable if I told you about it. Like, I would say that I had the cure, and you would say to me something like, I don't believe you had the cure, then it'd be awkward. It'd be awkward. We'd have this awkward moment, and I didn't really want to risk it being awkward between us. And what would your friend say to that kind of answer? He would say, well, man, you should have just told me, like, uh, you should have argued with me. You should try to convince, I could have died from this. You should have argued with me. You should have made it uncomfortable for me. And wouldn't, wouldn't this friend have a point? You know, he probably would not want to be your friend from that point out. Because you had, you had the answers, you had the solution, but you were unwilling to put your comfort ahead of his needs. You know, I want to suggest to you that it's not sharing the good news. It's far worse than not sharing a cure for a virus. That the gospel is real, if it is true... It is something you concretely believe. It has eternal consequences. Uh, one person that says this, uh, evangelism is simply one person, one homeless person telling another homeless person where they found food. Uh, simply one person sharing the hope that they have found. That's all it is. More than ever, I believe that in our city, the harvest is plentiful. 20 years ago, people had great hope in technology and the internet. 
uh, that it's going to create all kinds of collaboration. It's going to create all kinds of community. It's going to create all kinds of opportunities. But 20 years later, people are more pessimistic about the state of the world than ever before. Technology hasn't broken in this new era. It has destroyed our privacy. It has ruined our mental health. It, has, it is taking jobs. And people are more pessimistic than ever. But more than that, I think that people positively, they're more open than ever to ultimate answers, especially in our city. The harvest is plentiful. People are looking for answers. People are looking for hope. People are looking for peace in the midst of all the chaos around us. The harvest is plentiful. The good news is that there is a peace that does transcend all understanding. And God calls us into this plentiful harvest field to be his workers, to spread that good news. So this, here's the second thing. Uh, what is the methodology then of being on mission with Jesus? Jesus tells all of us, he shows his disciples all of the chaos, all of the needs, all the people who are harassed and helpless. And what does he do? He sends them out. He sends them out. But how are they to be effective as his witnesses? How are they to testify about this kingdom. Well, before he even does that, Jesus, he's modeling for them uh, this life on mission. And the first thing is this, if you want to be on mission with Jesus, you have to be a faithful presence like Jesus was. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is already modeling this with his disciples. He calls Matthew to be his disciple. And Matthew, this is the Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, before he was called, was a tax collector, and if you uh, don't know about tax collectors, they worked for the Roman government. They were considered criminal, criminals by their own people because they often stole the taxes. They overcharged their own people. They taxed them upon their taxes. They were considered untrustworthy. They could not testify in a court of law. And Jesus calls Matthew from this life of tax collecting. And when Matthew becomes a, becomes a disciple of Jesus, he's ecstatic. He throws a party. He throws a, uh, an amazing party and he invites all of his tax collector friends and what people deem as sinners. And he gets them all together at this lavish party. The music is probably bumping. And Jesus and all of his disciples, they're at this party. And having a good time, apparently. Because word leaks right afterwards that Jesus is there. He's there with his disciples. He's with all of these unsavory people. And the Pharisees, they got some things for the disciples. It's in verse 11, Matthew 9, 11, uh, they have this criticism that they level against Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The first century, eating a meal with someone was considered an act of solidarity and identification. Uh, and it would have been scandalous for a religious man to eat with a tax collector or what people deem as a sinner. Even today, imagine if you heard of a prominent pastor who, who often parties with strippers, prostitutes, and pimps. Imagine if there was a pastor and he regularly went to these kind of parties where the music was bumping and all these other unsavory characters were. You'd probably have questions for that pastor, right? Like, why aren't you at a Bible study? 
Like, why, why are you at these kind of parties with all these people? Uh, you'd have questions for them. That's the question that people have for Jesus. Jesus, why are you at these crazy parties? What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says, well, it's not, it's not people who are well who need a doctor, but people who are sick. I've come to call people who are, who are desperately in need of help into the light. The first step of being on mission with Jesus is that we love and we are constantly around people who are far from the kingdom of God. Uh, we're called to be a faithful presence with people who are so far away from us. And here's a question for you. Are you regularly and intentionally developing relationships with people who are far from the kingdom? Uh, who invites you to their parties? Uh, who do you invite to your parties? Jesus was someone that he regularly partied. He was invited to parties of people who are very far from the kingdom of God. He loved to befriend them. Uh, he loved to develop relationships with them and eat with them. Not just preach with them, but to eat with them, to party with them, to live his life with them. Being on mission with Jesus means we get out of our Christian religious circles and we're regularly out there at these parties, at these events, in these relationships. But the second thing is this. The second thing is being on mission with Jesus means testifying with a word and deeds. Uh, it means testifying with a word and deeds. When Jesus finally sends out his disciples, uh, look what he says to them. In verse 7, he says that they are to give this message to people. The kingdom of God is at hand. kingdom of heaven, rather, is at hand. That heaven is breaking into this earth. That the peace and glory of God is coming to earth. The reign of God is breaking in. That's the message. But along with that message, they are to act. Notice in verse 8, they are to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. They are to speak, but they were to act. And what the disciples were to do was to mimic Jesus' own ministry. In Jesus' ministry, he would go to the darkest places, preach. Right after that, he would do miracles. He would cast out demons. He would heal the sick. Why did those two things go together? And the idea was that the miracles of Jesus verified his word was a demonstration of his words. So when he cast out demons, he was saying, you know, all of us are possessed by some demon. Some thing in our life is driving our life. And we need to be freed from it. When he healed people, he's saying to people, we all have a cancer in us. We all have brokenness in us that we need to be set free from. We need to be healed from. The miracles of Jesus were a testimony it was also a verification of his words. That's what the disciples were supposed to do. That their, their, their actions were to be a testimony of the word that they were speaking. That's why in the early church, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts, it says that the early church spoke the gospel, but through their lives of generosity, they sold their possessions. They gave to anyone in need. They were testifying to the message. The way that the church and individuals uh, can really impact and testify is through our word and our deeds. Word and our deeds. In a world today, people are skeptical about Christians. That's why deed ministry is so important. 
Uh, I live, uh, me and my family, we live in a neighborhood called Eagle Rock, which is about 10, 10 miles north of here. Uh, there's a prominent church in Eagle Rock that uh, I pass by almost every day. And this church decided to do something really radical, really interesting. Uh, their mercy ministry collected $53,000. Uh, they asked the churches for donations. Uh, they seasonally asked people for donations to bless the city. And with that money, one of the deacons was in touch with a nonprofit. And this nonprofit was a medical nonprofit that bought medical debt from companies uh, that collected debt, uh, medical debt. And they bought $5.3 million worth of medical debt from people with that money. Uh, $5.3 million. And all of the thousands of people who had medical debt received a notice in the mail to say that their debt had been completely erased, completely forgiven. Imagine someone who had back surgery. They were out $20,000. They couldn't repay that. They didn't have insurance. They're getting harassed by phone calls and people. Getting a letter that said, you've been forgiven that debt. It's wiped out. This uh, Christian church was preaching a message about spiritual debt. Jesus said, forgive all your spiritual sins. Your debt is erased. But their mercy ministry was giving people a tangible application of that, illustration of that. That you can be in, in financial debt and be forgiven and free. I was on a Facebook, neighborhood Facebook site, and all these non-Christians were writing in saying, you know, I never wanted to go to church. I was so against religion and God, but this news made me want to go back to church. I want to, uh, it, it moved me in a way that made God real. That's what the ministry does. When a church is not just preaching the word, but demonstrating it, it's a powerful combination here in our church, we have a, a, we, I'm training five deacons, and what they're doing is they're asking the church, uh, John Gim, our elder, just talked about a um, survey. We're asking our church uh, questions about resources that they have. It can be simple things, resources that you have, like being able to watch kids, to being handy with rep- home repairs, or being able to handle a spreadsheet and budget. We're asking you what your resources are so that we could form teams to bless the people in need in our church in the city. We eventually this year want to form teams to do things like reach, uh, visit elderly people, uh, assist single mothers who are in need, that we can use all of our resources to be a blessing to those who are in need. And when our word, the gospel, and our deeds, they match it's going to be a powerful testimony. The ministry of Jesus and his disciples were word and deed. And personally, if, you're, if you live a life that is beautiful, uh, that is sacrificial, and you marry that with someone who speaks boldly about Jesus, your life is going to be a testimony. You're going to reach people with the gospel. So here's the question for you. Uh, Does your life tell a story about the kingdom? Does your life tell a story about the kingdom? You know, if if you are just telling people about Jesus and your life is no different, it's not sacrificial, people would just say, man, those are just words. I don't believe that. If you are living a a kingdom lifestyle, but you're silent, people just think you're just a good guy, a good woman. 
They won't think much about that beyond that. But when your words and deeds, when they match and you live that life in midst of darkness, that's the king. That's being on mission with Jesus. You're going to see God move. But here's the final thing. You know, being on mission with Jesus, uh, it's a difficult thing. And you know, in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out all of his disciples and he's brutally honest with them. And he tells them, it is going to be really hard. And what I love about Jesus, I talked about this last week, is he's really upfront about everything he, he tells you. He says, you want to follow me? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be costly. Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to go out and in verse 16, I'm going to send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. Jesus says, well, persecution is going to come. You're going to go out there into the cities and towns. People are going to talk all kinds of evil against you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to send you into the courts. They're going to flog you. Some of you are going to be beaten. Uh, But Jesus encourages them in the midst of that. And he gives them all kinds of promises. In verse 30, this is what Jesus says. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny my Father before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, in, uh, after he tells them about the hardships of being on mission, gives them his promise. And he says, the hairs of your head are numbered. You know, some people are very detail-oriented. They know all kinds of facts and figures. Jesus says, God the Father has cataloged how many hairs are on your head. Who knows that except God? And he's saying that because he's assuring them that every single aspect of your life is under the Father's control. He knows every detail. He has it all planned out. He is able to provide for you and protect you. That everything in your life is under his knowledge and control. Every detail of your life is under his his jurisdiction. God holds life and death in his hand. He's the king of all creation. And notice, before he sends out his disciples, he gives them authority. You know, in Matthew, um, right, right at in Matthew 10, it says that before he sends out his disciples, he gives them authority over the demons to cast out demons. He gives them authority over every evil spirit to cleanse and to heal. You know, if you're in Jesus, you have spiritual authority. That's why in James chapter 4, verse 7, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's very unlikely you will encounter the devil. The devil is not like God. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil can only be in one place at one time. There are a legion of demons. There's only one devil. You probably will never encounter the devil in your life. Uh, Probably, most likely. Uh, There's billions of people in the world. It's very unlikely you will ever encounter the devil. But in case, James says, in case Satan himself is tempting you and trying to harm you, you can resist the devil. Why? You have spiritual authority in Christ. That the devil cannot harm one hair on your head unless he's given permission by God. God has given you authority in Christ. 
Jesus says, go out on that mission field. I am with you. I give you spiritual authority. And here's the final promise. This is the final encouragement in Matthew 10, verse 42. Jesus says this, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says like a simple act of compassion is something that God values and will remember and will reward. Sometimes when we think about uh, missions, we think we have to do, go and do all these great things for God. We have to go to a third world country and build an orphanage. We have to convert and evangelize hundreds of people. And Jesus says, no, you don't have to do all that. Uh, the, even the smallest thing that you do for me, that's big. Jesus says, even the smallest act of handing out water, bottled water to someone on Skid Row, Jesus says, I will remember that. That's big. That's great. That's a great work. You know, uh, to be started on uh, being part of the kingdom and mission of God, I want to encourage you to start small. Those small things are great things in God's eyes. Small things add up to great things. Small things like a mustard seed can be planted to produce great fruit. So do some small things this season of Lent. Text someone who is discouraged in need of encouragement. Pray for a non-Christian friend and pray consistently. With your words and with your action, make small sacrifices for your kingdom. Don't get caught up in doing great things. Do small things faithfully for God and ask God to use them in great ways. As we close, the mission of Jesus and the motivation for mission is essentially ultimately always Jesus himself. You know, we talked about Jesus' mission was word and deed. Uh, Jesus went to the darkest places and he was word and deed. Jesus didn't just love us with words. There are a lot of people who say they love you. But they, will, they won't sacrifice anything for you. But Jesus, is, he doesn't just say he loves you. He proves his love and he acts upon his love in the ultimate way. He gives up his life for you. He sacrifices his own life for you in your place, in your stead. Jesus loves us with Word and deed and all of that is free. Notice in chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, when you go out and preach and heal and go out and do things for my kingdom, don't charge anyone anything. He says, you're not allowed to take any payment for it. Why? Jesus says, it was all given to you for free. Give it out for free. It's all grace. It's all free. Jesus gives you all of his blessings, all of his benefits, all of his forgiveness it's all free. It's all grace. It's all things that we are to, to receive. It's undeserved. It's simply by believing. And Jesus says, do the same for other people. Live a life. Give liberally, generously, sacrificially. Do it all for free. Because I've given heaven to you for free. And live out of that gratitude and grace. Live out of the freedom and joy of the love of God given to you in Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning and we realize that beyond these walls and even within us, there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of anxiety. There are a lot of people looking for answers. There are a lot of people who are fearful. Thank you that you have defeated death. 
at the cross and at the resurrection. Thank you that you are, Jesus, our living hope. That though disease and persecution would destroy our body, nobody can destroy our spirit. And though our body goes into the ground, you can resurrect our bodies from the grave. Help us to believe that. And God, I pray in midst of the chaos of this world, help us to be your ambassadors of peace. Uh, in midst of the anxiety that is around us, I pray that we would be your disciples that can preach peace, that can live sacrificially. I pray that our church would be a sign of your kingdom uh, here in this world of materialism, uh, that we would be a sign of your kingdom of your glory. I pray that you'd use us in small actions, that even in the small actions you would use it for great things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.